Right. Uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, it's a pleasure to see you all here. Um, today, uh, we're having the London launch of a much-launched report of the Task Force on the Future of Iraq, Achieving Long-Term Stability to Ensure the Defeat of ISIS. It was launched uh, some weeks ago in the United States. Um, to, uh, I'm Toby Dodge. I'm the director of the Middle East Center, but much more importantly, I'm uh, joined by two people who took lead roles in preparing this uh, um, report. First, Dr. Nasebi Yunus, who was the um, executive director of the Task Force on the Future of Iraq when she was at the Atlantic Council. She's now an associate fellow at Chatham House um, and is going to publish her book on Iraqi foreign policy with Hearst at the end of the year, which we greatly look forward to. PhD from Durham, postdoc from Harvard. Uh, that's on my left. On my right is Kristen van der Toon, another major uh, contributor to the report, uh, who is the director of the Institute of Regional and International Studies at the American University in Iraq, Sulaymaniyah. Wonderful place to go. I can hardly recommend it. Um, and has over 10 years of academic and professional experience in the Middle East, six of which is in uh, the Kurdish region of Iraq. More importantly, I suspect she's an expert on the disputed territories uh, in the area between the Kurdish region of Iraq and uh, the Iraqi government proper, and also displaced people. Both will speak for about 10 or so minutes. As I look out of the audience, I see some familiar faces of, of experts on Iraq, so I shall randomly pick on them as well uh, after we've had the formal presentations, which they might not be too happy about, but I think the audience will be generally greater informed. So without further ado, uh, Nusaiba, tell us all about this report and what it, what, how it was created and what it's meant to achieve. So uh, just over a year ago, I sat down with Ambassador Ryan Crocker, who's best known as this kind of ambassador extraordinaire for having taken on some of the hardest, uh, hardest countries that, we, that we've seen in, in the world in terms of conflict dynamics. So he's been ambassador to uh, Afghanistan, to Lebanon, to Pakistan, uh, Syria, and Iraq. And we were thinking kind of a year and a half ago how important it was going to be for the next U.S. administration... Uh, that was coming in in January of this year to think about Iraq strategically beyond the military defeat of ISIS. Where look, we were thinking back on 2011, on the withdrawal of U.S. troops in that year, and how uh, there was so little attention paid to securing the gains that had been made in Iraq at that time, and how the U.S., when it withdrew militarily, it also withdrew a great deal of its diplomatic support in Iraq. It kind of lost uh, its attention in Iraq's political scene. And it was, it was able to really ignore the deteriorating situation for years before ISIS evolved, uh, before ISIS was able to take a third of Iraq's territory. That didn't happen out of the blue. It was, it was allowed to happen partly because of uh, the U.S.'s willingness to overlook some of the very troubling trends that were apparent uh, in Iraqi politics over those years. So we wanted to make sure that kind of after the liberation of Mosul, which, which is imminent, I mean, every couple of days someone says it's imminent, but apparently it's more imminent than ever. And, um, you know, after the liberation of just those few other pockets of Iraq, Hawija, uh, a couple of other, Talafa, a couple of sm uh, small areas on the border, 
what is going to be the US strategy and kind of by extension the strategy of the UK, uh, which is always happy to follow, and, uh, and of other European states. What is going to be the strategy for actually ensuring that ISIS is defeated in the long term and that we don't end up back in this position in five years' time having declared mission accomplished roll the tanks back out of these Iraqi towns and cities and essentially just cede the political ground to the Iraqis to do whatever they want with. Um, so we really wrote this report in a bid to bring together Iraq experts from all over the world and to bring together kind of senior former policy practitioners, General Petraeus, General John Allen, former ambassadors to the country, people who've been senior in the White House, uh, to bring them together kind of in a bipartisan way so that we could make an argument to the incoming administration about the need to have a political strategy for securing the gains made against ISIS so that we do not have Iraq lead itself into yet another political corner where it ends up alienating part of the population and facing another extremism problem. So we've identified a couple of key things that the, that the US, that, that other coalition partners should really focus on when it comes to kind of moving the focus away from the military side of this fight. Absolutely key is governance. And, you know, I know it's not sexy, it's not exciting to talk about electricity provision, IDP return, reconstruction, economic opportunity, clamping down on corruption. It, it's a hard slog. It's really difficult for, for the Iraqi government to make any move on this. It's really difficult for Western powers to formulate a policy that effectively incentivizes reform on these key governance areas, but it's at the absolute heart of Iraq's legitimacy crisis. The problem that the Iraqi government has when it tries to kind of effectively maintain control over the Iraqi population is that there are whole sections of the Iraqi population from, for, from different territories, different provinces, belonging to different ethnic uh, and religious groups who feel that the Iraqi government is not delivering for them. And as they become more and more alienated and more and more distant from the state, they allow the opportunity for violent sub-state actors to essentially usurp the role of the state to kind of show up and provide local security, provide local access to jobs, uh, to provide local health care, and to essentially say that we can do a better job than the state can. That's the most dangerous, that's the most dangerous thing that the Iraqi government can do in the next 10 years, is to continue to fail to perform these basic functions and therefore to allow the opportunity, to allow these vacuums to continue to flourish where violent actors can, can once again take over the ground that the government should be occupying. So it's a tough call and I know the American public, the British public, European public, there is not a great appetite for any kind of nation building, for anything that looks too heavy handed. There's no appetite for a lot of investment of capital. But what we argue in the report is that there are ways to do this 
that are clever, that incentivize the Iraqi government to make reform, to make financial reform, to reduce regulation, to allow the private sector to flourish. And we can do a lot by working with the massive assistance that the IMF and the World Bank is already pumping into the Iraqi economy. So that's really on the governance side. There are two other issues that are critical. It's also now very fashionable to talk about kind of post-sectarian politics in Iraq. You know, we've seen these kind of secular protest movements rising up and really focusing their attention on corruption, on cross-sectarian issues, which is fantastic. But there is still a number of deeply sectarian issues that really need to be addressed. In the areas that are most devastated by ISIS and by the liberation of ISIS, those areas are overwhelmingly Sunni. Yes, there are also Yazidi areas, there are Christian areas caught up in that, but they're overwhelmingly Sunni areas. And how the government manages reconstruction, and if it screws up reconstruction, that's going to be seen through a sectarian lens. It's, there's just no way around it. Uh, because of where ISIS was positioned, it, it means that there is a huge risk of yet another sectarian rift in the coming years, depending on how the government manages some of the most vulnerable people in Iraq's population today, which are the internally displaced people, and many of them are Sunni, and are thinking about the government's response, or will think about the government's response through a sectarian lens. And that's something the, the international community has to be really careful about, and has to keep bringing to the attention of the Iraqi, Iraq's political leaders. The final issue is the military piece of this. It's the piece of this that the American government in its current iteration is most comfortable with <laughs> of all of these pieces. Uh, but it's an important one. It's important that the US doesn't, the day all of Iraq's territory is liberated, just pick up and leave. Uh, its military assets in Iraq are very, very valuable. They've done a very good job in building up the capacity of Iraq's security forces. They're especially very talented at securing access to a much greater swathes of intelligence, human intelligence. Uh, and they're able to push the Iraqis into doing more of the longer term kind of police work, detective work, aimed at disrupting extremist networks. So some of the work that really needs to be done in the long term to ensure that this is not a superficial victory. Maintaining troops in Iraq, US troops in Iraq, is going to be politically quite difficult from the US side and from the Iraqi side. There's already a huge battle in the Iraqi press and we're in an election year. Ultimately, there'll be parliamentary elections in April of 2018 and former Prime Minister Maliki already has got the big guns out, uh, trying to undermine current Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi by essentially calling him an American stooge, right? So, so maintaining US troops in Iraq will be used um, as a way of politically undermining Prime Minister al-Abadi, and I know that's going to be really tough for the Americans to take. The Americans don't... 
you know, they always wonder, is it really worth maintaining this, like, few thousand troops here and there when they come under such a heavy political fire? But I think absolutely the benefits to maintaining that troop presence far outweigh the political risks of, of maintaining them there. Um, and so I think it's critical that, that that force stays for the long term. And I've certainly seen, I, I think Toby maybe has some opinions about this too, I've seen some appetite for certainly the military side of this proposal. The governance side, hard sell. Hard sell, especially when the State Department is taking a hammering um, and when USAID is under attack, like I've certainly never seen it under attack like this before. Um, so some of these kind of soft power tools that we consider to be absolutely crucial to success um, are really under attack in, in the US right now, which makes you know our kind of advocation of, of these recommendations all the more important. Um, so I know that Christine's going to cover more on the KRG side. There's a lot of fascinating things going on there um, and huge risks in the disputed territories as well. And Toby maybe is going to touch a bit more on the US. Maybe. <laughs> Christine. Thank you. Okay. Um, so I will kind of the framework that um, Nuseba's put forth, I'll try to kind of complement that. Um, this report obviously, you know, mentions governance as the key to Iraq. Similarly, I mean, it's the key to the KRG, to the Kurdistan regional government. And, you know, it's key within the KRG, but also Erbil-Baghdad relations, um, a solution to that in whatever form is essential to Iraq uh, moving forward or stability in Iraq. I mean, We've been working on a literature review on everything written <laughs> on Iraq since 2000 and, uh, since 2003 and uh, reflecting on the literature written on and what happened in 2007 and 8, especially in the disputed territories, really reminded me of today because, you know, in 2007, 2008, when al-Qaeda was defeated, you had Sahwa, you had this a new horizon potentially, um, but right when that ended, Erbil-Baghdad uh, tensions arose um, because there had been uh, Peshmerga uh, gains or incursions in Khanakin um, around Kirkuk and uh, then Prime Minister, uh, well, yeah, at that point, Nouri al-Maliki sent up the Iraqi security forces um, to challenge these Peshmerga um, land grabs that the Kurds had kind of accomplished from 2003 to 2007 when Baghdad was distracted. And you have a similar dynamic today. So I think uh, it's something to, to, to reflect on, but there, what I'll talk about is the differences about today. Um, and so why things are potentially uh, the same, but maybe worse. <laughs> um, so I think, uh, it, the KRG, the behavior of the KRG recently um, can give us uh, some, uh, as a sign and can give us, uh, can signal to us what, how the Kurds are going to interact with Baghdad moving forward post-ISIS. Um, I, I would say the KRG mostly 
potentially the KDP, though also, um, you know, there's some buy-in on these moves from factions within the PUK, the Suleimani-based political party. Um, really unilateral moves we've seen over the years. So the most recent example is the referendum, the decision to hold this referendum. Um, I, I say a unilateral move because it's unilateral in that the Kurds decided it, but only some Kurds decided to have the referendum. Um, so I would say this is a sign of a very emboldened KDP these unilateral, more authoritarian-ish moves where they decide things are not negotiated with the international community or with Baghdad. It's not the first time that such this unilateral move has happened, but it's a continuation. And this is, I mean, a really big shift because referendum has been talked about in the KRG for years, um, but it's never been declared. And... I, I would be surprised if it didn't happen. And I also think it's significant. I don't think it's just they're having a referendum because it's a huge gamble because there is risking every international alliance that has been built for the past couple years, especially through the war against ISIS. So I would say you, you have a emboldened uh, KDP or KRG um, going forward, and also one that is divided, and also one that in which a parliament has not met in two years, and when most of the population has not been paid regularly um, in two years. So this is, I see a divided, erratic, unilateral uh, regime there. Um, so I think it, the referendum on two levels is important in terms of what it means and for the UK, for the US, for the Kurds, for Iraq. Um, one is the Iraq-wide level. And again, I really think this has to do with preventing what happened in 2007 and 2008, 2009 from happening again. It's about securing Kirkuk and the disputed territories. I would say that is the one of the or one of the top reasons. Um, this will give uh, the Kurds and particularly the KDP uh, justification and legitimacy for keeping the Peshmerga in the disputed territories that they've moved into since 2014. Um, I would also say, of course, as we've seen before, this is a card, good leverage in Baghdad for negotiations post-ISIS, who gets what in terms of revenue, oil revenue, territory, federal powers, et cetera. <coughs> so again, that's on the Iraq level. This is so I can give us some idea of how the Kurds or how they're not going to negotiate <laughs> after ISIS is territorially defeated. And internally, KRG dynamics, I won't, I'll try not to get too in the weeds, but I would say that Again, this is a really, uh, I obviously live in Suleimania, so I get the Suli perspective, which not a lot of people get because, frankly, most Kurds, there are some, um, are too uh, intimidated and scared uh, to write about how they feel publicly. Um, there are a lot of, like, off-the-record conversations about their perception of the referendum. 
And so I don't want to say that every Kurd is against the referendum. Of course not. Of course, in Dohuk and Erbil, there's widespread support. But in Suli and Sulaymaniyya and Garmian in these provinces, I mean, there's they are against it. There's opposition to it. Or people don't care. I mean, most people say if you came to Suli, you would never know there's a referendum. Um, so there, there is a lot of uh, there are competing. <laughs> Um, narratives about this referendum. So I would say um, a lot of people see it as an imposition. There's a serious coercion and intimidation campaign um, to fall in line uh, with support for the referendum. And so I think all of these are very troubling signs about the current state and the trajectory of the KRG. Um, divisions between the ruling parties, but also divisions between the population and the elites. Um, you know, it, the PUK is very divided. I would say the population of Suli is less divided, I think. I don't want to of course, in Suli, yes, there is support for the referendum, by the way. There is. Um, is every Kurd for independence? Yes, we all know this. Okay, so <laughs> that, I'm, that's, I'm taking that for granted. But there is a significant opposition or apathy toward this, the, that having the referendum and people really see it as an <laughs> imposition. Um, so, and of course, fundamentally, one reason is that it's really to distract people, of course, from the fact that there's no parliament and from the fact that people haven't been paid in two years because, of course, you know, after the war's over, these things will come to the surface. And there's no solution for them right now because they haven't been able to solve between Goran and the Barzanis about parliament and the presidency. These difficult governance issues no one wants to address. So it's easier to kind of deal among people and parties. And I would just say, you know, briefly about the disputed territories. I mean, really, this referendum is about the disputed territories. The, dis the territories are probably, as they always have been, the trigger line, fault line, the largest potential for outbreak of violence. Um, they continue to be. Um, I would just say a few things that have shifted. Uh, you have, of course, increased Peshmerga presence um, in the disputed territories, in most of them. Of course, now the Heshid um, from Sadia over in Khanakin to Sinjar, um, you now have, of course, increased or a new and increasing Heshid presence. In some areas, they have an okay relationship with the Peshmerga, right, in the kind of more eastern parts, not as much um, towards Sinjar. But there are deals being made. So I don't want to say, of course, this is going to lead to conflict. There are deals being made um, between uh, parties and people uh, to prevent conflict on a more local level. Um, and I would also say you have competing local forces, so more Peshmerga, more Heshid, and then uh, militarization of local populations and kind of ethno-sectarian based, so you know, independent Yazidi forces, independent Christian forces, pro-KRG Christian forces. This has always existed, but now it's just increased. And I would say one of the other dynamics, new dynamics in disputed territories that will need to be kind of negotiated and, and thought about afterwards is uh, the increased demands for autonomy. So you don't just have local populations who want to be with Kurds or want to be with Baghdad. They want autonomy. 
Um, they don't say, I don't care who I live under, but I want autonomy. I want local security forces. I want local representation in governments, whether they're Yazidi, especially with the Sunni Arabs, um, Christians. So you have increased demands for autonomy, more fragmentation, localization, um, and new actors. Um, so again, these are some of the governance challenges, I would say, in the KRG, KRG Baghdad, and disputed territories moving forward. Great, thank you. Well, this uh, being an event at LSE, there's a, 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 as much expertise in the audience as there is on yeah. the platform, and I <laughs> recognize both of Renad Mansour and uh, Falak Jabbar, who've both written a really interesting paper on the hash, so I'm going to ask Renad in a minute to give us a precy of that. <laughs> there's no such thing as a free dinner here, and um, I'm going to ask Falak to, to speculate about the future direction of Iraqi politics moving up to the elections, but while they recover from that shock and gather their thoughts... Um, I'm going to say a few things. I think it's doubly ironic. I was in, in Baghdad um, 10 days ago, uh, and uh, unusually the American presence was very hard to detect. And it's just doubly ironic, one, because they have an embassy that is uh, literally, literally a, a kilometre long, done in a, a, a very tasteful shade of taupe in a kind of Californian uh, architecture, and then just not coming out. But secondly, the new administration in, uh, in Washington is peopled by a series of Iraq veterans who are and have been for years obsessed uh, by what Obama did and didn't do. As you know, you might have known with the fall of uh, Mosul to Daesh, there was a huge debate in Washington about who lost Iraq. And on the Republican, the neoconservative side, key people who are now in the administration were very angry at the eight years of uh, the Obama administration, and there's a lot of gnashing of teeth and banging of tables and saying we would have done it different. Now, the great irony is, you have people like H.R. McMaster as uh, National Security Advisor, who spent most of his career in Iraq. You have James Mattis as uh, Secretary of Defense. So these people who would think they understood Iraq a lot seem to have adopted a very similar policy towards Obama. In fact, possibly even a, a greater modesty swirls around the corridors of power in Washington at the moment. And if we look at the campaign against Daesh, the uh, uh, with, on, or through, basically they're using uh, uh, a diverse group of contractors, whether they be uh, the PYD in Syria or indeed the Hashid and the, um, uh, the Iraqi army in Iraq, to, to, to lead Operation Infinite Resolve, or whatever it's called now, uh, the fight against Iraq, and there is the fight against Daesh, and there seems to be quite a powerful resistance to having anything to do with, ref with political reform in Iraq uh, and, and the deal uh, signed that Iraq signed with the international financial institutions probably for good reason is one of the most uh, the least restrictive of any of the deals I've seen done under the, the dying days of the Washington consensus. Now the, the upside of this I think it's, it's allowed a rejuvenated United Nations development program to step forward and play a central role in the IDP issue in the resettlement uh, both the European Union and the, and the United Kingdom's government have also uh, rather strategic interventions, but it is something we can think about, that, uh, something that, that I find difficult to explain, uh, the newfound modesty of the United States policy towards, towards Iraq and whether that will change. I doubt it will, actually. And one could argue, I suppose, again, that they were key players in screwing the whole thing up in 2003. This may not be a bad idea, but it does seem to lead look, across the region, as we see with the crisis in, with Gata, but we, it does seem to lead Iraqi politics to function under their own uh, power more, for better or worse. But now I want to come 
to Renad, and if you could give us a, a pricey of your excellent paper published by Carnegie on the Hashti Shabi. to their relations 
um, moving forward than Iraq, um, because whereas Iraq's always been unlike Syria, somewhere where the U.S. and Iran could have similar interests, post sort of you know liberation of Mosul, I think some of these issues will come before us. Brilliant, thank you, Dr. Jabbar. Could you tell us where you think Iraqi politics are going and, and who's going to win the 2018 election? <laughs> <laughs> first, I mean, the, the coming election will be the first one militarized. <coughs> 2010 wasn't, 2014 wasn't not militarized. The, um, the Maliki bloc has the Hashid, most of the Hashid actually, uh, part of Hashid's not. Led by led by Al Hakim, Omar Al Hakim. Yesterday he had a, a strong speech against corruption, against uh, the militias, uh, etc., against the other. Abadi <coughs> um, relying on the army, the Americans, and the victories, Musa, uh, among others, to build in a political capital. Would he deploy? An um, electoral block within the next elections? This is the biggest question in Denmark. There are indications that he would, but there are other indications he might not. He is, he is the prime minister of a party that's divided, and one block is set against the other, one led by Maliki, who is the official leader of the Dara party, the other block is led or su is supportive of uh, Abad. Now, for the first time, we have uh, Muqtada Sadr is supportive of Abad. And they are, and, uh, I mean, I was confided from several insiders, you know, that they have been coordinating all their uh, moves here and there, uh, much to the dislike of uh, by the Maliki and the others, of course, and Iran. So, uh, because I'm in you know, uh, we have uh, Murda all over the place and confronting the Hashid. The other thing, that the only thing is that the Sunni, they don't have military forces, but yet, I mean, chunks of them have been recruited by the Kurds, like uh, mm -hmm. parts of Shamma and Abdelaziyaw uh, and others. Parts are working planned, covertly or obviously with, with Maliki, and uh, they're coming in public you know, to, to, to express themselves. And part is working with Turkey. Turkey is trying to uh, give an image of the protector of Sunnis uh, in, in one sense. I don't know if, if, if this can go on with the, with the crisis in Qatar and Bahrain and the tensions between Saudi Arabia and Turkey, because Saudi Arabia is the money and Turkey is the tool, I mean, literally. But as far as uh, the, the Sunnis are concerned. So all in all, I mean, a new polarization, polarization is emerging. It is a fight mainly, but not exclusively, within the Shia. It's a fight between Maliki and this group, on the one hand, Muqtada and, uh, <coughs> and uh, Abadi, on the other hand. Uh, as usual, uh, uh, Hakim would be, he's too weak. I mean, I'm sorry to say, but it should be off the record, you know, but they, they, they consider him girly. Like, I mean, by, by Iraqi standards of masculinity and oriental kind of, um, manhood and that—that—that's a, a you know a serious uh, uh, offense, really, a serious thing to say. Um, last but not least, I think I think uh, if if Abadi has the guts, probably, probably we will see a you know continuation of this. Uh, and that, this is a very important thing, really, because what we have in Iraq 
which is, I mean, for obvious reasons, was not uh, flushed out. It, the, the report was cut down for obvious reasons beyond the control of the authors, who, the researchers and the authors, and beyond the control of the cyborg did a great work. Um, we have a failed state. And all the three criteria failed state. One is the monopoly of legitimate means of violence, which is, you know, the celebrate as a classical thing. I don't want to go to academy, uh, but that, that's a reality. We have seven armies in the And even Al Hashid, by the way, either, we have 54 groups in Al Hashid, and each has its own command system. And sometimes they don't coordinate, they don't, they don't want to, they don't like to coordinate. And this leadership of Al Hashid just a Thank you. Service will now uh, resume to normal, so you can actually volunteer to say something by sticking your hand up. I recognise you, and then you can come in. So, who'd like to ask the first question? <laughs> yes, David. Can you say who you are? Uh, David Butter. I'm an associate fellow at Chatham House, and very much not an Iraq expert, but uh, I have an interest in the government's issues and the kind of economic reforms. Um, um, in reference to where the IMF and World Bank could step in, I think in the statement made clear that this sort of USAID model is not very likely at the moment. Um, they've got a, a big task to address, and I'd, I'd imagine that you could make a case for it being stepped up really in an enormous way, um, a program of several billion dollars, several tens of billion dollars for Iraq, which would be allied to the kind of really radical government's changes that are not really talked about very much, talked to, you know, from what I can hear. Um, for example, you know, even in the Gulf now, we're talking a lot about VAT and all sorts of uh, taxation streams that really need to be developed for long-term sustainability, and that applies, obviously, for Iraq. Um, in terms of monetary policy, where do we go it's, uh, with the central bank as an institution, which, as far as I can see, would be rather eroded in terms of its independence like other institutions, how does that get built up? Do we start talking about, and the IMF sort of dances around this and says that the okay, pay is appropriate for the time being, but um, you know, for a longer term depreciation of Iraq, that whole area of exchange rate policy maybe needs to be revisited. I'm just wondering if there's any, you know, sort of areas in amongst all of the things we hear about every day about the militias and the politics of it. Is there a space where these things perhaps could come more to the fore in terms of the election campaign? I mean, obviously, the area where you'd, you'd see it being having most resonance would be from the Abadi campaign. Does, is there any kind of real momentum or willingness to push those sort of agendas? Thank you, David. I'll take a couple more and I'll sum them up. Yes, you, sir. Uh, uh, Josh Arnold Forster and I uh, used to work in the MOD, worked for the Labour Party as well. Um, two, two questions, really. Your point about the British people being tired of that. I'm not, I, I just question that. I can see the British policy making elite saying, no, we're tired of Iraq. I'm not sure the polling evidence supports that. I, I do listen to 
government ministers who should know better than oh, of course we we're different because we have no boots on the ground despite you know my friends in in, in the British military have been on the ground and are still on the ground and expect to be on the ground for some time mm. and they're not wearing sand. Mm. So yeah. there's that tension between <laughs> British policy-making elites and the British population over this issue. The second, and, and I think the more worrying and disturbing thing I, I find, I, I mean, I entirely get your point about governance and that being key, you know, the most important part. And I don't know what it's, the perceptions are in the US, but in the UK, I've lost count of the number of times I've talked to different people who say, oh no, it's all the fault of um, uh, the FCO. You know, these diplomats live in their embassies and not on the ground. And then you talk to people in the FCO and they say, less so these days, but there was a period when they were saying, no, it's all the fault of these generals who just want to go and kill people. And then you get the military who say, oh well, you know, Diffid are just not capable of it. So my problem with this recommendation is I don't see an outstanding record of success by the UK government in helping Iraq in terms of developing its government. So I was just wondering how you think HMG or, or the US government could improve its support for the Iraqi uh, people on this. I'll sum all these up, but I'll go for one more question. Yes, you, sir. Hashim and Hashim from the Iraqi Democratic Movement in the UK. Uh, well, obviously, uh, the, the main subject of the, the meeting is the report which we I write there with, with an interest. Uh, first, first thought or first question is that that report and the work has been done before the change in the administration. So, how is this going to pan out in the uh, the, the new administration? Which is different, has different, uh, completely different approach to things. So, I would like to hear your thoughts about that. Uh, then uh, there is a, a more general uh, observation. Uh, there are there are changes in the balances and the dynamics in Iraq, uh, mainly because of the 14s suffering, uh, and I'm talking about the silent majority in Iraq, and this is manifesting itself in the uh, widespread protest movement which is not, as you probably know and you follow, it's not organized by someone, it's not led uh, by, by, by it's, a, it's a genuinely grassroots movement. And this reflects it, it, the old difficulties in Iraq and the intimidation and polarization and the tense atmosphere. If there, are, if there is this widespread uh, support to the protest movement, that tells you how far-reaching is the, the emotions are and the, uh, the people aspiring to change. So there is a sea of change in here. But I don't see that reflected in very much in, in the report. Excellent. So we have, on my account, we have five questions. Uh, the first is from David Vatter about can economic reform come, uh, become central to the up-and-coming election campaign? And the secondary question that I'll add was, how do you impose neoliberal reform on a failed state? But that wasn't his, that was mine. The second is, is questioning the issue about whether the British population opinion polls are tired of involvement in, in Iraq. The third question I think is more telling and a, a particularly powerful one. How could the you know, United States government, or indeed the, uh, the British government, given their uh, past record of abject failure in Iraq, improve their capacity to help the Iraqi government? 
The, the fourth question, I think, is a fascinating one, which is about, given that this was, the research for this was largely done before the outcome of the American election was known and may well have been uh, anchored into a, an assumption of a different election result, uh, how can the new administration be uh, influenced? And the final one, I think, is, is, is the most interesting one to me. Given the, the August 2015 protest movement that swept up from Basra, and is still a uh, very alive issue in Baghdad, calling for a civic state, uh, uh, damning the Mahasasa system, and identifying corruption. What does that mean for the 2015 elections, the silent majority? Uh, let's start with Christine and then go to Nuseiba. I'm going to, um, I think Nuseiba, can I at least start with Nuseiba on the okay. economic question? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, an interesting thing to watch out for, actually, is that... Prime Minister Abadi has actually been piloting a really interesting initiative for the collection of fees for electricity delivery. So he's kind of piloting in a couple of areas where he's essentially con contracting out to private companies the task of collecting fees for electricity, which basically no one pays, to reduce, um, basically to reduce electricity demand in those particular areas. And then what you end up seeing is because people are wasting less, less electricity, there's a lot more availability, plus there's the money coming in from, from those dues, plus the government's funneling extra electricity to those areas to kind of make those pilot systems a success. So that's been a real success story, and yet he is coming up against relentless political attacks. Um, and this is just going to be a theme at every step of the way uh, in any attempts to reform the Iraqi economy and governance system. So he's been accused of essentially of um, sneaking privatization into the Iraqi economy. So that, you know, essentially this should be a publicly provided service, private companies shouldn't be benefiting from it. And even though locals on the whole are celebrating the increase in electricity that they have uh, access to at a much cheaper price than they would be able to get access to from private generators, the politicization of the issue on the national scene is kind of drowning out those local voices. Um, and so it's important that these small success stories are continuously highlighted in our diplomatic exchanges with the with the Iraqi government officials from all, you know, we deal the UK government, US government deals with all of the different Iraqi political parties, not just with the kind of Iraqi government itself and not just with the Iraqi state institutions. But where we see success stories, the success needs to be highlighted again and again and again to kind of cut through some of the really nefarious like political staining that, that's often done at the national level that, that can really that disincentivize very positive steps when they are taken. I mean, the key thing to mention about the IMF um, and World Bank uh, funding injection that's gone into Iraq is that the conditionality that was kind of imposed alongside that was very weak. And it's totally understandable. Uh, the IMF, what, and, and really this was, you know, kind of the IMF policy on this was heavily dictated by the US. The U.S. Is really, was really riding up these conditions. Um, and what they were worried about is that 
In 2014, when a third of Iraq was lost to ISIS and oil prices came plummeting down and the Iraqi government was on was in the middle of a massive financial crisis, what they didn't want to do was to force the Iraqi government to essentially engage in a massive austerity program and to risk uh, and to risk basically bringing out Iraqi citizens onto the street in kind of mass protests and riots. But the fact remains that the single biggest expenditure of the Iraqi government, and it is unsustainable in, in given every calculation, is the wage bill and pay pension payments. I mean, it's just a rentier state. I mean, Ira the Iraqi government is just paying um, millions of its citizens, most of whom are not doing gainful work. And this is this is the back, you know, the back needs to be broken of that system. But I would suggest that the best way to go about doing that would be to kind of, number one, obviously to wait until ISIS is very much under control, is reduced to simply a low-lying insurgency. Um, and after the next parliamentary elections, if we get a kind of strong level of political support for a second Abadi term, hopefully, um, you know, it, once we have some kind of popular legitimacy for a new prime minister, then maybe beginning gradually to work on this issue will be more politically realistic. And I know the prime minister's tried, you know, reforming salary payments, and that has not gone down well. And although the protest movement has been a fantastic showcasing of Iraqi civil society, and, and there's been many positive sides to that, Obviously, a downside is makes it very difficult to take people's salaries away <laughs> and to cut salaries and to cut pension payments. So you really need to start with kind of a stronger level of political legitimacy and kind of control over violence before you can embark on that critical issue that the IMF has basically left untouched. Christy. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to... I don't have too much more to say about the IMF and World Bank, but that I just agree with Nuseba about the timing that pushing, you know, as I understand, the World Bank has <laughs> it's been as flexible as they can be, and so have the Iraqis, and they're still worlds apart, and it's not the right time. It's like the referendum. Um, any jolts to the system right now in this crucial year, I think, like that, are, should be uh, put off until after elections. I mean, I, I, don't, I can't speak about the British electorate. I would I I'll kick that to, to that, you, yeah. and I can comment briefly on U.S. policy, though I don't think it's yet formed. <laughs> I just think um, the, the point that they've made about the payrolls, I mean, figures are, are difficult to obtain, but it's estimated that the, pay, the government payroll in 2004 was around 850,000 people. Uh, today it's between 7 and 9 million with a monthly uh, pay bill of about $4 billion. I mean, that, something rather, given that the state itself has failed and isn't actually delivering on its services, I wonder how all those people got their jobs and what they're doing. But, um, yeah, there's two things on the table for you to say. Well, one is that the, the British population aren't alienated uh, from their soldiers getting killed in Iraq and they should do more. And then, secondly, uh, was this report written for the Trump administration? So... And if so, how's it been received? <laughs> so that's a so interesting point about the British public, and I think it applies to the American public as well. The British general public, the American general public, they care about security. 
they care about national security. It's obviously a major concern. And so if the administration in question presents a policy in another country, presents a continuation of a military presence, presents a, an enhanced diplomatic presence, or indeed an aid package, in terms of ensuring the national security of British citizens, protecting this country from ISIS and, and potential successes to that militant group, I think absolutely there will be support for that. The problem is that it is absolutely an easier path for politicians in this country and in the United States to say there's no appetite for continued war. There's no appetite amongst policymakers for continued intense engagement in fixing another country's governance system. That's true. And so they're not making an effort to really explain to the general public why that engagement is necessary and important. But I think absolutely they could make that case and it could go down very well. And that leads on to your next question around, is the US and other coalition partners, are they even capable of making any difference to governance in, in Iraq and in any other country? And, you know, I think it's a matter of degree. It, this is not about reshaping Iraq in, in our own image. You know, I think some of the, the goals that were set out in the early days of the Bush administration, yes, they were unrealistic, but we can make incremental changes, we can encourage incremental changes, that can make a huge difference. So we are already funneling in a huge amount of aid. So, you know, determine where it's spent. You know, it makes a difference to, to, to funnel aid towards local administrations instead of to the central government and to encourage decentralization. It makes a difference which security forces we agree to train and we don't agree to train. You know, we focus on professional Iraqi army soldiers, the CTS, and we generally don't work with the Hashid. And, you know, it's about bolstering the more legitimate elements of the state uh, and, and refusing <laughs> to have the resources we're putting in anyway go towards the wrong things. So it's an important part of strategically thinking about what we're trying to achieve and making small changes along the way. And so, of course, we, like everybody else, thought the Hillary administration was going to be, it was going to be coming in in January. And so there was a very um, stressful rewrite, entire rewrite of the report for the Trump administration. So, so, so it is quite a different product. It's a lot shorter, uh, and it's much more kind of focusing on the grand strategy rather than looking into detail uh, at some of the, into some of the weeds that we've thought Hillary people might be interested in, but we don't think the Trump people are necessarily. But, you know, we, what we did was we kind of boiled down the report into executive memos that went to Jim Mattis, that went to Tillerson. We got good responses from them. We've had good responses from the National Security Council. Um, they're aware of the they're aware of the issue. They're aware that there's a deficiency in their political strategy, but it's just being deferred. You know, right now we're focused on Mosul. Tomorrow we'll be focused on Tel Afar. Give us some time, and we'll start thinking about about, you know, disputed areas and whatever. Um, yeah. I think the Trump administration is mesmerizingly inconsistent. It's fascinating. 
Um, but what it has been consistent on is the issue of the referendum in the KRG. It has been consistently against that. It's consistently in very brutal and straightforward terms told uh, the, uh, President Barzani that he shouldn't do it. And I suspect it won't recognise the outcome of it, which I think we can all predict. But that's another issue. Sir, you had a question. Yeah, um, uh, I just, I feel like you're really beating a dead horse here with Iraq. I think, uh, and I don't want to sound too crude, but uh, just to make the point that when America invaded Iraq, or when the coalition invaded Iraq, uh, I think I was 15 at the time, I, I think most Iraqis were pro-invasion. We wanted the freedom that can come the democracy and, uh, you know, we had enough of Saddam, essentially, and we would, you know, do a deal with the devil, essentially, and now that's, I feel like that's what we've done. Um, I, I feel like when America invaded and they removed the, the army and the, the debatification process started, they essentially removed the middle class, and uh, if I can translate this comment into a question for you, is why wasn't there a plan, you know, post the invasion and there clearly was not a plan and now we're sort of making reports and talking about the events on the ground and it's all the result of that there wasn't you know that you know Marshall style plan as you know post World War Two in Europe and you know I, I was so, you know initially I thought okay this they must you know they, it was clearly you know it might just be a mistake but I'm much more cynical now I feel like how can they have you know simply gutted the country and walked away, and it's just a dead corpse now. That's essentially what it is. And uh, just uh, one more question: Who's funding this report? And you know, I I go to Baghdad on occasion, and I I can't imagine how this report can translate into any real change on the ground. You know, I I, I see how they behave and the way they think, and that the Iraqi government is just a racket, essentially, you know, for siphoning money out of the country and. The decisions aren't made in the Houses of the Parliament, they're, they're made in the, the party headquarters. So it's just, it's a mess and I feel like, you know, reports like this almost legitimise the government and I, I feel like, you know, that's totally the wrong strategy. This government needs to be delegitimised. It's just a mafia racket. I've got those two questions. Professor Tripp, enlighten us. <laughs> no, I'm not going to enlighten you, but I just wondered whether there's a, a caution in, and actually it's not so far off what you've just been asked, in that... You make quite an eloquent plea that um, the military side is much focused upon and good governance is, uh, is rather sort of pushed to the side and you were trying to suggest quite rightly that the report um, tries to emphasize that. But there are two things there which make you wonder about the whole question of good governance, the weaponizing of good governance from external actors, making people do what you want them to do to fit into your mold not necessarily what they want to do. There's one side of it. There's another side with the weaponizing of it, which you've seen in terms of Muqtada's um, uh, campaign about anti-corruption. You, you think you mobilize anti-corruption campaigns, not because you dislike the phenomenon of corruption, you dislike who's benefiting from it, so you use it. And you've given Avadi a huge amount of credit, in a sense, but, you know, he has his own plan of who should be favoured, who should not, who gets what contract, who doesn't get what contract. And I, So in that sense, I think that one has to be a bit wary of that. The other side of it is something that I suppose has come up in the, in the responses now, which is this notion of good enough governance, which you could say is a very powerful motive in Britain and the United States. In other words, 
up to a certain point, but what that does, and that in a sense reinforces the point that was made over there, which is good enough governance means that you look for a quiet life, things go on under the surface, but that's fine because they're not you know, disrupting it too much. So there is a real question about whether the notion of governance, good governance, should be deconstructed in a much more critical way. I'm not saying you should have done it in the report, but I can see that there is a danger that if you conform with these things, these things, these things, then that's fine, we'll leave you alone, and you're... But of course it's not. It's, there's something else going on. There are endless procedures, processes, the kind of thing that Falak was talking about as well, uh, going on underneath. The question I want to ask, which is that... Um, uh, about, well, the question was, was that, you know, is, it, is it time to reflect upon whether this is really the, the way to think about it? But the other question is about, exactly as you said, at certain moments you capture uh, a, uh, a move in different sectors of the Iraqi population against Mahasasa, against uh, the communalization of politics, against the sectarian, and you see these very brave people coming out and sometimes being attacked very ferociously by one force or another. And I suppose if one's trying to think about Iraq systematically, so systemically, in other words, as a different kind of system, is there any purchase for such groups? You can see manifestations, people, you can see associations, organizations, but I suppose this is the question leading up to the elections. When you look at who's going into the elections, whatever they may be saying at one point, the forms of association are still those that are going to depend upon that system. They're not the people who are going to talk about it. They may make some concessions in public and so on, but that notion of thinking of Iraq differently strikes me, it'd be quite interesting to hear, and Kurdistan differently in some senses as well, which is, is there a space for thinking it differently? Let alone not a space for thinking it differently, but acting upon that, that thought. Great, and the final question, this round the gentleman at the back then. Yeah. Hi, my name is Dia from King's College London. Um, my question is, it actually dovetails quite nicely from the two previous questions you've just had, and it's that the consistent theme within, Iraqi, within the Iraqi political system since 2003 has been one of paralysis, uh, in some instances hijacking of democratic processes and so on. And I think particularly with, uh, and Renard mentioned this with the creation of the Hashim Shafi, we see an increasing politicization of military actors within the state. And now, in particular, and you, you did certainly mention this with the mobilization of military uh, I think, I think somebody mentioned militarization of, uh, of groups in the run-up to the election, and if anyone could just probably give like a, like a three-point answer in what is the most prominent thing that needs to change within the country, because between not having much of a political process in the first instance, having uh, highly politicized, highly uh, mobile uh, military actors, and then also having an absolutely shambolic uh, uh, financial plan within the system. What do you feel is the most prominent issue within the state at the moment? What needs imminent change following 2018? Because these are things that are going to be very much debated in the run of that. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I've got uh, I've listed about eight questions, but I'll boil them down. The first is uh, why was there no plan? And there was a hint that no plan might have been a plan. Uh, and then secondly, who's funding the report? And why do we believe there'd be any change? From Charles, beware of the weaponizing of good governance, I would have thought, but or good enough governance. And there's under, underpinning that is Sada's backing for the anti-corruption campaign, Abad is posing as technocratic governance. May well be just 
a way of um, of shifting uh, the div dividing up of, of resources to people closer to them politically. But I think the other question that comes out of the 2015 uh, demonstrations is there, the, the anti-Mahasa uh, demonstration, is there space for good governance? I, is there a popular platform that can deliver good governance? And a very succinct but demanding question from the back, what are the three big things that need to change? I will go to Christine now, and then I'll come back to Nisoba. Um I mean, I, I, I think we could talk about what happened post-2003 for a long time. I mean, I don't disagree with anything that you said. Um, I think, you know, it was a failure of the U.S. It was also a failure of Iraqi political elites. Um, I think they're, um, I'm not going to get into who shares more of the blame, uh, you know, demilitarization, debathification, but also um, not a very good plan or a lack of plan among Iraqi political elites. So um, I think that needs to change as well. Um, and maybe it has, maybe. Uh, Dr. Falak could talk a little bit about that. Um, I don't want to put him on the spot again. <laughs> but um, I would, the only other, I'll let Nuseba talk about the report. Um, uh, my institute, where, where I work, where partners on this, we hosted the task force. So that's somewhat how it was funded, at least one aspect of it. Um, there, what was the last one? I actually had an answer for that. Uh, is there space oh, for, the uh, for yeah. anti-Mahasasa mobilization? Yeah. And also, what's the three things that need to change? Okay, I'm going to take the easy way out. I mean, one thing I had that's related to a couple of those was that, I mean, and I don't want to take credit for this. I think other people have said it. Um, the founder of AUIS, uh, Dr. Barm Salat, talks about this, talked about it in a recent article he wrote. I mean, I'm, I, this is optimistic, so... I'm going to put that forward. I mean, to say that the failure, like the post-2003 political order in Iraq failed. It failed. It failed over time, but it failed especially when Daesh came in. So does that provide us with an opportunity? Um, has there been widespread or semi-widespread rejection of ethno-sectarian politics? You hear some of this. I, I, I don't want to say I haven't done polling. I'm speaking anecdotally. Um, uh, I see it in the KRG. Uh, you hear it in Baghdad. You hear it in other provinces. You hear it from other people who have heard it. So I, as you're saying, it's, we're beating the dead horse. But that is, you know, pessimistic. Then you're going to say we're giving up on Iraq. Um, I, don't, I don't think it's time to do that. Um, I think it's time to reflect and learn and s see what's failed, which is a lot. Um, there are opportunities now with a defeat of at least the territorial defeat of ISIS. I see in the U.S. and potentially among others a new interest or at least more powerful interest in um, how to combat extremism by looking at governance, employment, um, job creation, youth bulge, which of course we've talked about in the Middle East for a long time, but these are things, I'm a little bit playing devil's advocate, but these are things I see as optimis optimistic or uh, some signs of optimism. Um, yeah, that was, that's all I'd say. Over. So, uh, forcing good governance. Uh, I am someone who does not believe that, and I don't know if this is what you were getting at, but I don't believe that good governance is... A, a, the preserve of the West and I don't believe it's something that is 
something that we impose on countries that have a different way of of seeing effective government institutions. What I believe is that the Iraqi people have certain demands and expectations of their government, and the government has not been fulfilling those expectations quite clearly because people are out on the streets and saying, give us access to electricity, to a better economic system, and end corruption. Those elements of good, of good governance aren't some kind of Western conspiracy to force other countries into our model. Those are things that the Iraqi citizens are demanding and anything that we can do as partners of the Iraqi government and essentially as, as you know, by not doing our bit to encourage our resources that are going into that country to be used properly and to be used in the advance of the interests of the Iraqi people. If we didn't do that, I think we would be complicit in bad governance, right? And I think that's a far greater risk than forcing, you know, a particular model of good governance on on these other countries. In terms of, you know, whether Sadr and Abadi and, and others um, are kind of exploiting the protest narrative or, or presenting themselves as reformists when they're not really reformists, I think it's all a question of degrees. Like, ultimately, we're not going to tomorrow, we're not going to, in April 2018, wake up with a government formed of protesters who have no interest in milking the state uh, for their own for their own kind of financial gain or whatever. I think it's a matter of helping to support those politicians who are less bad, who have better intentions, who have better policies, who experiment with reform and try and push the envelope a little bit further. And I think that's okay. It's going to take a generation to have the kind of wholesale reform that Iraqi protesters on the street are demanding. But it's okay in the meantime to, to really celebrate that Abadi's in power and that he's a lot better than what came before and to and to celebrate and that's not to overlook the crimes that he's he's implicated in in the past but the fact that Muqtada al-Sada has come over to the side of the protesters and is talking in a language of reform and is trying to hold the gov the governing system to account, is trying to push the kind of appointment of, of, of technocratic ministers. I think those are positive things, but I think it's also important to note that it's become very easy in Iraqi politics to use the narrative of reform to dress up even the most insidious and most corrupt kinds of political movements. So you have Nouri al-Maliki holding, holding inquests and, and kind of pushing people out of, of their positions in the Iraqi government based on this kind of false notion of going after corruption when he is, you know, really the architect of an incredibly corrupt system. So, you know, there's positive things some of the less nefarious Iraqi actors are behaving better because of this pressure to focus on governance and reform. But then it also really muddies the waters when what we're going to end up with in 2018 is every single manifesto promising an end to corruption, promising to, corrupt, to, to prosecute those who are responsible, promising to repatriate the money to Iraq, promising you know, all kinds of things. 
but I think it's also, uh, and this is coming back to one of the earlier questions, there is absolutely a space for protesters who have been doing a fantastic job over the last few years in, br in changing the political narrative in Iraq. So it's harder and harder for Iraqi politicians in Baghdad to keep on using the Sunni Shia trope when the protesters are grabbing the headlines and calling for an end to this kind of sectarian division of positions in the Iraqi government, in Iraqi ministries, and saying what we care about is corruption and jobs, and we're not buying this sectarian narrative that you guys are pushing. So they've done a great job in shifting the whole the whole tenor of the political debate and the subjects that are being discussed on Iraqi TV are now, you know, that agenda's really been shaped by the protesters, but it's going to take a long time for that to translate into into a really substantial change. Three things that need to change, top three things. Um, well, I think that the Iraqi security forces need to strengthen their ability over time so that when some elements of the Hashid uh, need to be reined in, that that's possible. Uh, the second most important thing is that the United States coalition partners of Iraq stay absolutely engaged with the KRG and with Baghdad if Barzani pushes ahead with this referendum um, <clears throat> and makes sure that there is not a devolution into violence along the disputed territories. I think there's a huge risk of that. Barzani, this referendum is really different. But, uh, President Barzani has thrown caution to the wind. When you look at how he's speaking about this referendum, it's a sea change. He's talking about this referendum, you know, previously referendums were just to take the temperature of the Kurdish people. This referendum will lead to a declaration of independence. He's on the record as saying that. He's, he's going on record saying, if all of the surrounding countries blockade Kurdistan, we would rather starve to death than to, you know, than to cave into a continued oppression of the Kurdish people. I mean, ridiculous hyperbole, but a real shift in the kind of language and rhetoric around the referendum that we've seen before. And I think that's, that's really dangerous. And he's talking about disputed territories as no longer disputed. He says there are, no, there are no disputed territories. They were disputed, but then we took them back. So we don't just, you know, there's no dispute anymore. We just have what's rightfully ours. So how do you even get, how do you even get the Kurds to the table to talk about disputed territories when Peshmerga already control those areas and when they're not interested in negotiation with Baghdad because negotiation will only mean that they lose. They feel like they only have things to lose at this point. So I think remaining engaged on that is the second biggest priority. Third biggest priority, I think, is getting dis uh, displaced Iraqis back into their homes, whether those homes are inconveniently placed for the Hashid or for the Peshmerga, because there's a lot of attempting to demographically re-engineer some of these very sensitive areas, Baghdad belts, the disputed territories south of the Kurdish region, but keeping those, dis those displaced people in camps and not allowing them to go back to their homes, 
that is creating the basis for another insurgency. So, thank you, Andrew. Um, Andrew Rathmark, been in and out of Iraq the last 15 years. Question for both of you, really, but meant to be Christine. What does good governance look like on the ground, practically, someone like Nineveh, where you've got a really complex political and administrative situation? So what would good governance look like? <coughs> Excellent. Yes, that was very concise. Uh, Emmanuel Murtel, practice strategy. Uh, my question regards to now that Islamic State is becoming less of a state, as Bashar Mosul and Rafa, it's going to kind of shift from like, conventional warfare to asymmetrical warfare and to increase suicide attacks and increase online propaganda. Do you think the Iraqi government is ready for that? Excellent. Yes, sir. Hi, my name is Roland, King's College London. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a bit more about how the report has been received by different factions in the US government. Right, in the US government. Different factions. Which factions do you have in mind? So, um, I, I imagine the state bad wing of the administration would, would not be very receptive to being very involved internationally, but I imagine other factions like McMaster, etc., as you mentioned. But I was wondering if you could go into a bit more detail. Um, you mentioned the State Department had been gutted. Is there anyone in the State Department who's still running for this? What about the Excellent. And one last one in this round. Uh, yeah. You, yeah, you. Um, I just, uh, Abigail Watson, Remote Control Project. I just wondered, um, the, it, it, it seems like the, there was a real short-termism short with um, arming the Kurds for the quick military battle and then having to deal with the long-term implications. I wonder if there are like, any lessons learned that we should be drawing from Brilliant. So four questions. What does good governance look like in Nineveh? Uh, are the Iraqi government ready for Daesh's return to asymmetrical warfare terrorism, basically? Uh, how did the different factions within the US government react to the report? If Steve Bannon's read it, I'd be amazed, but we'll... we'll uh, and then... What are the lessons learned about short-termism in arming the Kurds, especially as the Kurds are just about to take Raqqa with American arms? Who wants to go first? What did you go yeah. on, Ninua? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to selectively pick one and four. So, <laughs> one, I mean, that is a tough question because there are so many competing visions uh, of what Ninua should look like administratively um, because... For example, if I, let's say I pick, okay, a Nainua becomes a region um, or it's going to divide into separate provinces and we have one of those provinces as Sahel Nainua with Bartola, Bahshika, Hamdania, um, Tel Kaif, and Shekhan. Okay, so maybe not Shekhan because the Kurds won't give that up. But And then you have Mosul. Potentially, and then you have a, I'm just Arabia Sinjar or Sinjar province. You have like three new provinces there. The Kurds. This satisfies the demands for local autonomy, which are very strong. The minority populations, and I, I mean, Nusayb, I think can talk a little bit more about the Sunni Arab demands in Nainoa, which are also competing. Um, for, you know, remaining inclusion in the state versus increased autonomy. I would say you, it, there has to be more autonomy. And by autonomy, I mean um, provinces and also uh, more local representation or representation of local populations in a real way um, in the local governments and district level and provincial level 
um, whatever it becomes. So I think you're going to have to have an administrative reconfiguration that will probably mean potentially mean the creation of more provinces that will have a more that will have budgetary control, control over security forces, um, and control uh, over local governments. I, I, I know that. Then sounds like the breakdown of the Iraqi state. Um, I think, you know, I know there's still, I just thinking about scholars and people I've talked to, that <laughs> would, that sounds very troubling too, because when you take so many powers away from the central government, that also can lead to further breakdown of security. But I think at this point, there's just, there's not another option um, because of the local demands, because of the breach of trust. Um, in August, in June, July, August 2014 there, and that extends from Sinjar, Mosul, Bashika, whether there were attacks or not, there's been a total breach of trust between the center and the periphery, between the people and the center, and I don't, I don't think it can be reinstated, even in a place, Sinjar is an extreme example, even the other places where there weren't massacres, it's, it's too strong. And so, but what would have to be negotiated with this, these would be with KRG in Baghdad, um, you know, giving up some control over those areas. And, and especially with the KRG, they will, it will be very difficult to negotiate out, probably impossible, Sheikhan and Bashika because of the oil, not because they, you know, have an intense emotional desire to, you know, control these areas. Though they do consider at least Sheikhan part of Kurdistan. Short-termism? Oh, yeah, oh, the short-termism. Yeah, I mean, I I really agree. This is, you know, the, um, the weapons, the direct, I mean, the U.S. did not directly um, supply weapons. We went through Baghdad. Of course, other countries, Germany, have directly supplied Peshmerga. Either way, it is definitely... There, there was, we actually, the U.S. put a lot of conditionality on this, so we did, but I think whether there was conditionality or not, how it ended up on the ground and whether it was our intention or not, um, it has emboldened and empowered um, the KDP uh, to basically do whatever they want. And uh, they do not have widespread popular support outside of Erbil and Dohuk. And so we've done, I mean, this is not exceptional for U.S. policy or for any policy. We've supported our partner in a war against an extremist group. Uh, we have picked the strong man and we, as our partner, and I think it is, and we are seeing uh, <laughs> what happens when you do that, the referendum, you know, the independent oil sales, the referendum. So this empowerment, emboldening, as maybe we intended this to go to all Peshmerga, but as we know, there is no unified Peshmerga. These weapons and supplies stayed in Erbil. They barely made it to Suli. So we have empowered one faction, one family um, within the KRG, within this two-party structure that is the Kurdistan public authority. Thank you. Uh, did Steve Bannon like the report? And secondly, are the Iraqi government ready for Dash's <laughs> return to asymmetrical warfare? Yeah, Steve Bannon was not interested in this report, <laughs> shockingly. <laughs> shockingly. Um, no, there's, look, obviously the White House is very clearly separated between very, two very different impulses. One is to reshape 
the strategic outlook in the Middle East and to push back against Iranian power. And that's coming from Derek Harvey very strongly, you know, kind of head of the Middle East uh, strategy at, at the National Security Council. And he and, you know, McMaster's kind of a, a little bit more cautious than that, but he's really pushing for uh, a much stronger line against Iranian activities that threaten U.S. allies in Syria. And we have seen a shock, actually a really shocking break from the precedent that had been established of extreme U.S. caution in Syria. Now, the shooting down of, of not only Iranian drones, but also of manned Syrian aircraft, uh, of really pushing back and defending the Syrian democratic forces in eastern Syria and trying to carve out this kind of American zone of influence, that's really being pushed from one side of the White House. And al although they're pretty preoccupied right now with eastern Syria, by extension, they're also interested in the surge of forces in Afghanistan. They're also interested in absolutely maintaining a U.S. troop presence at its current level, you know, at the 5,000, 6,000 level in Iraq, well beyond the kind of defeat of ISIS uh, or between the, beyond the liberation of Iraqi territory. So there's that impulse from the one side to not allow the Iranians to get away with using sub-state actors to define uh, the conflict dynamics in the Middle East any longer. And then there's the absolutely opposing impulse <laughs> from Steve Bannon uh, and, and others on the kind of alt-right extreme nationalist side who want the president to be absolutely focused internally and to extricate the US as quickly as possible from these foreign wars, not to escalate in Afghanistan, and, and you know, it's, a, it's descended into a really vicious, tough war inside the White House and with no clear victor as of yet. So it's something that would be really interesting to keep following uh, and to see kind of where things play out. It would be interesting to see how things go in Afghanistan. I think that will be a good indicator for how U.S. policy will progress in Iraq over the next few years. Um, the Iraqis are not ready for asymmetric warfare. I mean, they're still not ready for, for this kind of land warfare that, you know, without the support of the U.S. and coalition forces, they'd, they'd be really struggling, um, although they have improved over the last couple of years. But, you know, still, the ability to secure Iraq, Baghdad from car bombs, still not that. You know, we're still getting continuous breaches of Iraqi, of Baghdad's defences. But I think something we're going to continue to see is this increasing distraction by the turf war between the Baghdad Operations Command, between local Hashid parties, who are now, you know, we saw a firefight between some Iraqi local police in Baghdad and a faction of, of the Hashid. Who is going to be responsible? And the Hashid is making a play for controlling security in Baghdad you know, saying that, but saying that the Iraqi government has been unable to deliver. And of course, the Hashid in a number of liberated areas still obviously across Diyala in, and in substantial parts of Salahuddin, the Hashid are, secu are, are controlling security and are contesting the rights of local police forces to, to, take, to take that role. So what happens is... Um, 
we see extremist networks falling in the cracks when you have separate kind of uh, separate jurisdictions separate territories controlled by competing forces and they're not sharing information and, and of course we're also getting abuses being committed and not being properly investigated disappearances of 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 Sunni civilians of people who are accused of being ISIS members and then never showing up in a courtroom these kinds of things can't you know have a have a devastating impact on the legitimacy of the Iraqi government in some of these areas where at the moment there's a lot of goodwill and a desire to kind of be reintegrated into the Iraqi state but that can very quickly be lost um, just on the short termism of arming the Kurds I think Christine is absolutely right there has been a tendency to let the KDP mm. literally do anything <laughs> you, the KDP can arrest journalists, it can shoot journalists, it can, you know, it, it has been able to shut down a functioning parliament for two years, and there haven't been costs in terms of its relationships with external powers. And I get that, of course, ISIS takes precedent, there's a war we're fighting, that's more important than everything else. But as that threat starts to recede, it's important that we don't create another internal conflict within Iraq mm -hmm. between Kurds. And it's not as if there's no precedent for that. And, you know, the death of the Goran leader, Nelshua Mustafa, I think makes this a much more real possibility. Because there's this kind of, there's, there's a disaffected group of Kurdish youths who are disgusted by the Kurdish political system, who used to think they had an outlet through Goran, peaceful protests, some political participation, ways of applying pressure in the Kurdish political system, and they feel increasingly that that, that vector is closed off. And I think more kind of rioting and violence and you know outbreak of conflict is a real possibility especially if this referendum is being seen as a way is being seen as a coronation for Barzani you know it's making Barzani into the Kurdish king presiding over the independent Kurdish land you know it's been seen as a way of imp further empowering the KDP and so you know there needs to be some very tough conversations about what are going to be the consequences of this continued behavior in terms of the diplomatic international relations of the Kurdish government if this continues. Right, we're out of time. So it, uh, it um, leaves me uh, with the task of thanking Nasaba, thanking Christine, thanking Farah and um, Renad for their uh, impromptu lectures and thank you all for a series of excellent questions. Uh, let's thank the speaker. <laughs> <laughs>